welcome to Hort Culture, where a group of extension professionals and plant people talk about the business, production, and joy of planting seeds and helping them grow. Join us as we explore the culture of horticulture. I've had lots of coffee. I have a really big coffee <laughs> mug. So you're going you're gonna to be able to tell the level of hype through this episode. And we're talking about some cool stuff today. But my from the question, you know, we always start an episode off with a good question. And uh, instead of a completely random one, I have a good one that will also lead us into our topic. What is your favorite? And it can just be in this moment. You know, what is the one that you're thinking about the most? What is what what native plant excites you? Is makes you happy that you love that you tell everybody about, and when someone's like, "I want to plant something," you go, "Oh, gotta have this." What is it, Josh? Go. Schumer oak. It's all I ever think about. <laughs> Constantly. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Ray. I'm gonna have to say because I read it in an email, but also it's one of my <laughs> favorite uh, native plants. I used to dig it and sell it as an herb, but golden seal. Love mm. it. Oh love yeah, I it. saw that email come through Damn. as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love Look at me school. go. Well, uh, mine is, of course, something that's going to pull uh, a lot of different, a lot of, it's going to come from a lot of different things. Mine would be Nine Bark, Physocarpus is uh, one of my favorites. And then I get to introduce you to our wonderful guest today. Brett's not with us, but that's okay because we have a wonderful guest who's another brunette. And I'm super excited to have some like <laughs> more hair power, not even girl power, hair power involved in uh, today's episode. So we have Laura on with us today from Oakland uh, Farm. And I tell me your favorite right now, what excites you, what native is just p- pumps you up. Well, hello. Thank you all so much for having me and for bringing in Schumard Oak and Nine Bark and beautiful forest medicinal golden seal. You all named some great ones. It, it is a hard question, but in this moment right now, I was spending some time at the nursery yesterday showing and walking around a spice bush that I have planted. Mm-hmm. Spice bush is one that I've been getting closer and closer to every year. And this one is actually a female. She just started producing berries yeah. last year. And so that was, you know, just exciting to see her, you know, stepping into that. And I don't know, she's just covered in flower buds. And it's a really neat part of the canopy where spice bush can fit. I could go on and on, but spice bush <laughs> every is on season, my mind right? All like you should be able to have a favorite in every season or for every like different application. Because people ask me all the time, well, what's your favorite flower? And I'm like, I don't know, today or in <laughs> May? Because that's a different answer. And I feel that's the same with like native plants because sometimes you're, you know, excited about spice bush and sometimes you're just, I want all the good fall color or whatever that is. And some plants, you know, do a lot of cool things like nine bark because she's the best. Uh, but <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I'm really excited to talk about native plants. We've had a lot of requests for native plants. So shout out if you are one of those people who said, hey, can you talk about natives? Absolutely. And the only reason we hadn't yet is because we wanted to have this wonderful guest on today. So Laura, tell us about you. Tell us about your business. Tell us about, I don't know, if you got a cool dog, you can tell us about that too. <laughs> of course she does have yeah. a cool dog. <laughs> yeah, we, we got two of them, two farm dogs that probably need some more jobs, but, uh, but yeah, my, <laughs> hi everybody. My name is Laura Greenfield and I'm born and raised here in central Kentucky. Grew up in Lexington, uh, but also going out to Paris, Kentucky, Bourbon County, raised some of raised territory and going out to my family's farm where my grandmother and cousins and, and family lived. And 
the farm's been in the family uh, quite a while, and I always really loved going out there, you know, spending summers out there, taking the drive on Paris Road, getting out of Lexington, being out there for holidays. And uh, when I started at UK, I was just getting really interested in agriculture and trying to find ways to get involved on the family farm. In its history, it's been all sorts of, of things. You know, it was in, it had mules, there's, you know, a couple of big mule barns, you know, mm. made for mm-hmm. stalls and, you know, feed troughs for the mules from, you know, hundred something years ago. And it's been a lot of row crops, of course, tobacco. We tried the hemp pilot program to grow hemp for, for seed, you know, a handful of years ago. And now it's predominantly beef cattle. And then we have a small herd of uh, cow-calf finish operation of, you know, the cows and the calves and, yeah, my, my fiance, my uncle's out there farming. We're all farming together. Got our two dogs. And then about, it was 10 years ago this year, we started the tree nursery. And that's just been the joy of, of my life to get to be in that journey and getting to know these plants more and more every year and meeting people from across Kentucky. There's so many people that are seeking out native plants and doing a lot of really cool projects mm-hmm. with them. It feels it's like, a- I don't know about you, Ray, like, I've been I've been an agent now for 11 years and so every year it feels like there's more and more people coming in asking for natives and where do I get them and you know the first 5 or 6 Definitely. years I was here it was kind of hard there was one place that might have just like a couple of the basics the milkweed the you know great things but nothing not the vast array of great native plants we have here in Kentucky and certainly not woodies uh, and shrubs because obviously they take some more time to get going so it's so exciting now I feel like the past two years, I've really been able to give people some options mm-hmm. and say like, oh, yeah. oh if you want to go, you know, get woody shrubs or trees, go here. If you want pollinator specific, go here. It just really, I, I've just really seen that grown, which is awesome because it seems like people who really might not normally landscape, they don't really care, but somehow they suddenly care about natives, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes me wonder, yeah. and maybe everybody can kind of answer like this question, but what is are people voicing a reason for their desire for natives like is there specific reasons they're asking for it i don't know laura what do they come to you looking for when you speak to individuals or businesses i'm assuming you sell to both is that true individuals or businesses come to you yeah we sell to i mean a wide range of, of folks it's people you know maybe in more urban areas, more cities where they just have a yard and can plant a tree or a line of shrubs, or even, I mean, there are people who wanted to put a micro forest in their backyard, you know, just full of edibles <laughs> yeah. and everything. And, and then, yeah, cities and parks and conservation districts, folks working off of conservation grants, you know, reforesting mm. their farm or establishing perennial wildlife food plots. I think a big reason people are so interested in this is one that we're really standing on the shoulder of giants, you know, as that phrase goes, there's the generations ahead of all of us, the folks that, that got it and really saw the benefit and ecosystem values to these plants did a ton of legwork educating communities on it and, you know, having very, very small scale, you know, backyard nurseries. Mm-hmm. And now I'm able to go to some of them as my mentors and, you know, learn from them. How did you to communicate about this? You know, let's talk about how we show people the caterpillars on these plants. So mm-hmm. just in general, you know, small local scale, there's been a lot of education over the, you know, past decades and more. And, uh, and then just a lot of research at the national level, too. I have mm-hmm. Doug Tallamy's book right here. Nice. All, you know, post-it note marked up. He did research for folks that don't know up in the Northeast on 
I mean, the, the product of a lot of his books is about the pollinator relationships mm-hmm. with these plants that we call native species, mm-hmm. you know, that formed over evolution. Another big book I got that we lean on is um, Dr. Mary Wharton's Tree and Shrubs of Kentucky. Book. Oh, that's a good one. So I think we're, we're reaching this point where we, the foundation has just been building, you know, just thinking mm-hmm. about building the soil. We're all trying to build the soil. It's just, it's become a really rich environment. People know about the plants and I think you're, you know, interested in, in just something different, you know, plants that really work with our landscape mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, it's starting to make sense to people. Before we uh, get, get too deep into it, I guess we should kind of in a round way define what we're considering natives or, or how do people mm-hmm. in general define that? Any of you guys have a definition you want to throw out there? I know we were talking a little bit about this earlier. It doesn't have to be super specific. But what's your all's definitions? Uh, Laura, especially you, where you're in the business of natives and you have all this personal interest in uh, natives. uh, What's your definition? Just curious. Yeah, I I think that's an awesome place to start the conversation. And I think my answer may be a little unexpected being someone who has, you know, run and, and sold native plants, you know. And so I think there's there's a lot of different definitions that I think we've been handed from different places. And some of that is just, you know, in general found in Kentucky or common in Kentucky. We see these, you know, in books, like some of the books I reference, old records, you know, that we have or cultural knowledge that was passed down, lists that were shared from, you know, UK or from Fish and Wildlife. Um, I hear some folks trying to talk about a definition sticking to a particular timeline, even, mm-hmm. you know, they were here before Daniel Boone got here. <laughs> right. Some other ways that people define native plants are maybe it's not just native to Kentucky as a, as a state, you know, which are borders that we have created, but they're more native to eco regions. Mm-hmm. You know, what mm-hmm. is native to the top of the yeah. mountains of Eastern Kentucky? What's right. native to the floodplains of the Mississippi river. Another way people define it is it's defined as a negative. Sometimes it's not quote unquote invasive or it's not <laughs> quote unquote alien. But I really feel like these these definitions that I just said aren't the full story because native actually changes based on the particular timeline mm-hmm. that you're looking at. You know, our ecosystems have constantly been changing since the beginning of time. And just like a stream is meandering back and forth trying to find a balance, the ecosystems are also orbiting Absolutely. around a balance. And so what we consider as quote unquote native here in this certain point in time is actually not the forever condition, Mm -hmm, you know, thinking about climate change that has, you know, Earth's climate has always been shifting, of course, drastically now with, you know, human induced climate change, um, disturbances, natural and man-made ecosystems are just constantly shifting. So I think it's, it's really hard to land on something Mm -hmm. particular and say, this is native. (laughs) And I'm not even sure that's, that's really of benefit, you know, to the plants. So what what I say to sort of long story short, to answer the question that when I'm talking about the species that I'm growing and the word I've been handed to label them as native, but I'm really like longing for a different word. But some mm-hmm. of the, the traits I focus on are these are plants that have long standing, deep relationships and connections mm-hmm. with their ecosystems. They yeah. have evolved alongside the climate, hydrology, soils, pollinators, wildlife. They have these really complex, like beautiful symbiotic relationships and they have this ability to adapt as their ecosystem changes as they have mm-hmm. since the beginning of their 
time here. And then just in general, you know, species that are working in balance and supporting Mother Nature trying to reach a balance. That's probably yeah. really good. But, but you it, made the, I love your yeah. point that you made that natives don't stay in one spot, but mm-hmm. natives right. move like everything else and they have different dispersal mechanisms. And I've heard that in part of the definitions in my readings that I've done is it's uh, natives that progress with non-human or with no human intervention. That's one mm-hmm. of the aspects of natives. Another that I've heard is, you know, pre-European settlement in the Americas. But all of this is kind of exactly what you said. Uh, they've developed in a certain way in their local ecologies Mm -hmm. they don't have any kind of massive movement with intervention yeah other than their own mechanism i like that a lot i mean i hadn't heard that articulated that way before but it's like deep ties and relationships that Mm pre-exist in these ecosystems i like that a lot because my shorthand kind of answer usually is something like you know was here pre-columbian exchange but you know as you point out it's like these are living things with processes and there are all these external factors influencing things. So it's, it's, it's always going to be a moving target. We can't just pick one point in history pre 1492 and say this belongs and this doesn't, or this fits and this doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's really, it's really, it's really cool to think about just how long these timelines are of evolution Mm -hmm. and plant migration. You know, we are just here for such a short amount of time. And, and we see these as, you know, the, the common plants that are here, but that's just going to continue to change. I, I think a, an interesting example I've been thinking about recently is a Northern Catalpa, you know, one mm-hmm. of the, the plants we call a native, a native species here in Kentucky. They're huge ones in central Kentucky, but actually, you know, in documentation I found, it's like, well, they're actually, their eco region, they're quote unquote native to is Western Kentucky in the mm-hmm. floodplains. And mm. my grandmother tells a story of growing up on, on the farm and someone came by in a wagon to sell catalpa trees. <laughs> and that's why there's a row in the front of her yard of mm. catalpa trees. And so a lot of them, you know, now we must think in central Kentucky were planted or now, you know, have, have spread by their own, you know, seed. But I'm just thinking when we documented, we see catalpas just in western Kentucky at what point in their plant migration did we catch them? They weren't always in Kentucky. Were they Mm -hmm. moving? Do we actually catch them at a moment in evolution when they were trying to get more north or more east Mm -hmm. or maybe out of Kentucky? We caught them at a very particular time. And so we know, you know, since then climates change, definitely soils have changed since then, Mm -hmm. because like I said, you know, non-human and human interference and disturbance has happened. So Laura, yeah, I think it's just um, good to. Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say I think it's just it's always it's always nice to land on you know what what do we just be curious and about the plants you know oh yeah who are they interacting with and Mm -hmm. and what are those relationships how long have they been around it's it's way longer than us. Uh, Alexis, Laura, and you too, Josh. I mean, when you speak with people about natives, are they thinking about things like this? I'm just run, wondering, particularly you, Laura, like when people come to you, like what's their motivation that they state for coming? And, you know, because natives, that's a pretty niche thing sort of still. It's becoming more broad spread. But I mean, why, why do people say that they're interested in natives and they want to involve themselves with natives? Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of support because of all this education and research that happened about supporting the pollinators. And so as, as y'all, you know, I imagine, you know, the, 
there's all of these insects in the world and 90% of them have evolved alongside just like one to three species of plants to reproduce and host on. Only 10% are generalists. It's kind of wild. And so, you know, spicebush, like I mentioned earlier, and its cousin sassafras, they're the only host plants to the spicebush swallowtail caterpillar. And people, you know, there's been a lot of, of campaigns, you know, creating monarch way stations, which is amazing. And likewise, you know, a lot of these other butterflies and moths can only reproduce on certain plants. Mm-hmm. And so people will come just, just focused on that. You know, I, I've learned about the monarchs and the milkweed and I want to do that for everybody else. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I would say love, that was, love, yeah. it just seems like that stemmed that I was going to say that earlier, like that monarch and bees too. Right. So I think mm-hmm. whoever kind of these way stations for, or, and all these like, you know, they're starting with these like sort of bee little bee way stations, but the people who sort of created monarch way stations, I think whether they did it on purpose or not, but included a lot of plants that are good for other pollinators, right? And like not always necessarily the exact host plants that are needed, but you know, maybe it's a nectar source for something. So maybe it's not great for the caterpillar, but it can be good for the butterfly. Uh, But on top of that, of just, you know, let's create these way stations and they'll pull double duty for something else. It created an awareness of, of that. I, you know, there is a need for this. And so I think that's where a lot of native things came from where they're deep diving into a monarch way station. And then they're like, Oh, look at this other little tab about swallowtails. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to include that in my monarch way station. And then, you know, it's like, Oh, that's a native. Well, is that native to my area? What else can I support? So it sort of just was like a trickle down effect the way I've seen it in my, you know, my area. And so then they get to this ultimate place of like, having these native gardens and they notice that their native plants seem to do better in their yards than, you know, their, uh, you know, some of their other plants that they've gotten. And then all of a sudden they're killing off all of their uh, ewes and their ivies and all those things and putting it. <laughs> they're trying to kill those things. They're trying off. to kill it. <laughs> they're facts. trying. Yeah. And putting in these uh, native species and really trying to do, you know, rain gardens. It just seems to be like this sort of trickle down effect that kind of, and at least my area stemmed from sort of those monarch way stations and support the bees uh, initiatives. And it was just like a people just deep kept deep diving, kept, kept clicking the next tab on the internet. Right. So, it, but it's been good. It's been good to see people caring about other things as a result of caring about this kind of monarch and bee issue. I call it's, pollinator gardens the gateway to natives because yeah, it kind of exactly. is yeah, approachable. Or, yeah. yep. And I see I see pollinator gardens like I was in front of Country Boy uh, what last year and I was like, oh, that's an awesome, you know, pollinator garden. And mm-hmm. it raised so much awareness. And like you said, Alexis, it makes people ask other questions. Mm-hmm. And then it starts this whole line of inquiry kind of down the line. Like, well, I can support the monarchs, cool. but what else can I do in my, you know, mm-hmm. pollinator garden? It's just like it's an excitement and all the different things that go along with that. It's It's been great to see. I've got a friend who it was like that exact thing happened to her. It was like suddenly she found out that the monarchs were in trouble. And she was like, I got to do something about this. It was like, you know, when we – when Laura, when you and I were young, it was the sea turtles, right? Like the sea turtles are all dying <laughs> and we can't have straws and we got to cut our six packs up, right? So now it's like the monarch and the bee or the new sea turtle. <laughs> but – so I just watched her little garden grow and her come to me and say, like, what else can I buy? What else can I buy? And now it's, you know, she's got four spice bushes and she's, 
She only buys plants based on what the, you know, pollinators and their different stages are and just the release of the caterpillars. And it's just a whole thing. And now she's getting into the birds and how does that ecosystem, you know, work into, you know, these pollinators that she's supporting. And it's just, it's been fun to see how this like tiny little thing has grown into this massive garden (laughs) that she's got with all these different natives involved. I think it's a really that's cool awesome you know, to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Really, it's hard if, if not impossible once you learn about these interconnections to close your mind mm-hmm. to the that. web. Yeah. And absolutely. Yeah. A lot of my talks when I'm you know talking to garden clubs or, you know, people, uh, a lot of my talks about native plants end up talking about the caterpillars, honestly, and birds and, mm-hmm. you know, these insect, you know, thinking about, these woody plants are eaten by the insects and then the insects do this incredible, I mean, magic of transferring the sun's energy up the food web. Mm-hmm. That's they're They're so critical to every single aspect of the food web of which we are a part of. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And yeah, it's just, but yeah, there's other, yep. Yeah, I think pollinators are a big, are big, um, yeah, gateway, as, as y'all are saying. And then, <laughs> butterflies are really the gateway. People love butterflies, <laughs> yeah. and if you can relate butterflies back to the plants that support them, you have them. And you it's easier to get kids and involved, bees. right? Because, like, butterflies are so exciting, and if you start them young with this idea, then it just it just flows up the system from, you know, these it's elementary schoolers. It's easier to sell that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they mentioned that. I can't remember what class it was, but I remember somebody pointing out this phenomenon of the, quote-unquote, charismatic megafauna, and it's like – the animals that we like, that yes, we look at and think, how do I save yeah. that? Because it's really hard to just say, well, ecosystems are cool. What do you embrace with that, right? Like, how do you mm-hmm. identify that? Uh, so it starts with saying, don't you care about this? And look, it's part of this whole huge family and it has a habitat. And yeah. So the way it was put to yeah, me, Josh, was uh, you don't relate anything, any plants that support cockroaches, because people may not care about those <laughs> as much as butterflies, even though they're both important. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, yes, they are they yeah. are here and they are important, you know, mm-hmm. in their mm-hmm. own way. And that sort of relates to another another thing people come seeking out as they're doing removal of introduced species. Mm-hmm. Species yes. like I was hoping we were gonna talk and, about that. Yes. And bush it, I think it's hard to talk, you know, if we're calling one thing native, people wanna call something different, you know, mm-hmm. something they wanna give an other, you know, name to it. And so yeah, people are working on their property to remove introduced plants like garlic mustard, bush honeysuckle, you know, farther down South it's kudzu. I mean, the Mm -hmm. list, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. And so as people are doing removal, they are replanting with, with native plants. You know, an example is that the part of the canopy that spice bush in our woods typically occupies when a forest is, is disturbed and bush honeysuckle is able to take up that space, you know, that then, isn't space for spice bush. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think, I mean, similar to, to my definition of, of native, you know, being a little bit more complex, I, I think it's also, yeah, talking about what, what we call, who we call invasives is also really important. Um, I got some customers who say that they hate invasives and speak really harshly, use really, you know, emotional, harsh language about them and are, and are buying woodies from me. 
And then, you know, maybe the next appointment an hour later will be a customer who is speaking very differently mm-hmm. about quote unquote invasives. And you know, they might be folks living with bush honeysuckle and managing its spread through grazing mm-hmm. ruminants and also planting natives. Or, you know, down south, folks are learning more about kudzu and piecing in that cultural knowledge that none of us had when, our, you know, everybody was introducing it. You know, how do communities live and work with it, use it mm-hmm. as food and fiber and medicine in Asia. And I just think right. it's, it's wonderful and funny that, you know, both are seeking out these species that we've already talked about have so much value and even values we haven't mentioned, you know, pollinator support, but riparian buffers, you know, health for our water quality, food crops, all of that. Mm-hmm. But I think when, when we talk about invasives, the, I think it's really important to name that we have to first accept where we're at now. Mm-hmm. You know, we have caused, we as humans have caused a ton of disturbance that is here you know, mm-hmm. an example is bush honeysuckle didn't just come in and take over right. pristine, giant, healthy <laughs> forests. You know, we first logged those forests yeah. and took right. away their ability to support spice bush. And we've learned now that, you know, bush honeysuckle is one that can really thrive in those conditions. And so the way I, I want to operate and, you know, encourage other folks to operate is just, you know, taking responsibility, lean into that acceptance and learn from these why is, mm-hmm. you know, why actually is this happening and, and why were the monarchs struggling so much? Mm-hmm. Why right. are, you know, for the horticulture industry too has, I mean, a giant responsibility for bringing in introduced plants that brought with them diseases and beetles. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, we've like, we have caused a lot of disturbance and changed the ecosystem so quickly. Usually this would have taken place you know, evolution happens when things are out of whack and we have whacked up so, so many things. Understatement right. of the year, Laura. Here. It is right, wacky right. out here. And, and and at the same time, like, I believe Mother Earth is handling this. She's the mm-hmm. best one who knows who knows how. Her timeline, though, is just much longer, right. much mm-hmm. more sustained than ours. And so we've created so many opportunities for evolution to happen and some of us aren't aren't patient enough, you know, to wait another thousand right. or ten thousand years <laughs> to see how this all shakes out, you know, how the stream meanders back. And so that's why, you know, there are definitely folks who are putting energy into into removal and replanting. And at the same time, you know, like I said, at least the other fifty percent of my customer base are folks that are living with, with these yeah. introduced species and, and still planting natives, you know, Somebody not letting said- anything. Stop them. If somebody's uh, one person's invasive is another area's native. And I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting because they were just pointing out the fact that it kind of all relates to the speed with which somebody brought something somewhere typically, or they mm-hmm. disturbed an environment that let something in that was, you know, maybe moved through human intervention. But I thought that was really cool. They said one person's native is another person's invasive. And they were just speaking to the fact that, you know, it's here now we deal with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had a completely different take when I, I was uh, pr- prior job, I was a, a commercial landscaper and uh, I never thought about it in terms of natives at that point. I'd thought about it in terms of whatever I, I could get my hands on, but I loved working <laughs> with natives because they were adapted to local conditions and mm-hmm. I had less follow-up phone calls typically with plants that weren't considered natives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things I think in a functional, from a functional perspective in landscapes is I love the, the thought of natives 
that they are well adapted to the local ecology, the local environment. And that's one of the reasons that I recommend them a lot, because I think in the long run, they're not zero maintenance, especially during establishment. Maybe that's a misconception we can talk about a little bit. They do take a little bit of establishment in some cases. But yeah, that's the reason I like natives is that their adaptability, uh, that they are adapted rather. So, And I think, uh, I think sometimes when I'm working with gardeners who, you know, maybe they have a very traditional landscape, you know, they have Nandina, they have daylilies, boxwood, those kinds of things, nothing wrong with them, but they're, you know, ready to, they, they want to do a total overhaul because they feel, I think a lot of the time, some level of like guilt, you know, and they're just like, I gotta, I gotta completely overhaul it, but they still want this no maintenance or low maintenance. And you're like, <laughs> well, invasives are low maintenance, but then you start telling them the names of some of these natives, uh, you know, you've got and what I'm thinking of immediately is things like Joe Pie or some of the Solidagos, which is a goldenrod, which is the state Kentucky flower, in case you guys didn't know. I know you guys know, but like listeners, if you didn't know, <laughs> you start telling them this and all they can think about is sort of that very aggressive. It's everywhere. You know, they think of it more as a weed. And I, that's, I think, why I kind of hate the word invasive. I almost wish it was something called like alien because – you know, goldenrod can be like invasive in your garden beds if you don't have a good species, you know, if you have a very aggressive species. And so it's natives it's, can be aggressive. It yes. can be kind of hard sometimes when yeah. you're talking to people who really want the idea of natives, but they don't want to work hard. Aggressiveness. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the low maintenance landscape, right? Low, yeah. Low maintenance landscape. Yeah. In That's general. Yeah. Um, when I used to do more work with like the nursery extension stuff, you know, because there's a, there's a profound benefit to having a quote unquote low maintenance landscape that you're not having to mow and stuff like that repeatedly. But I think one of the educational framings I used to use was to point out that, you know, a backyard isn't truly like the middle of a forest, you know? So right. when you are planting species, they don't have the benefit of being surrounded by mm -hmm. all of their existing mm -hmm. friends and family connections. Like there, it's a tree on its own. And that's why it needs more like attention and support because it's in that built environment, yes. right? Like there's, we've already kind of changed. It's like typical place yes. in right. such a way that's that we have point, Josh. Well, yeah. and Great Not point. all of the land, like we were saying earlier, what's what's native? Well, it, it could be found in Kentucky, but is it found in Western Kentucky or is it found in, you know, the hills of Kentucky right. type of thing? And you're trying to plant both of those things in a yeah. full sun area that it might not, that maybe it's a full sun plant, but it's more alkaline or it's more acidic. So just because it's native, and I tell people that all the time, like I just got a question this morning, someone wanting to know where to find a bunch of white pine seedlings. And I said, well... <laughs> Like here's, you know, I gave them some options and where to find, you know, a hundred or whatever seedlings. And then I said, but if it's, if you have clay soil, that's not, we don't see them thrive here. They thrive over by the gorge, over in areas that have a sandier, maybe a more acidic soil. Uh, the drainage is very different. And, you know, we're only an hour, an hour and a half from the gorge, but we have heavy clay here. So that, you know, just because white pine might be found in those areas does not mean that it's going to do well in Boyle County, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So just like thinking about that and it's, it can be just as, just sometimes it's hard to think about natives, uh, as it is to think about, you know, just any plant that you're going to find at Lowe's right. or something. Well, yeah, Question we have this, I was going to say we have this like kind of association because it's a gradient, right? Like if you go into like a very, maybe not a downtown space, but a tightly 
population dense area, that built environment can be 100% artificial. You can Mm -hmm. create whatever soil texture you want and depth and all that. Um, But as you move outwards, you're less and less likely to be doing something like that, Mm -hmm. right? Like the energy required to do something like that just becomes too costly and you'd rather not create something Mm -hmm. brand new and instead work with what you've got. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, it's a there's path some of really cool, Yeah. There's some really cool work that uh, landscapers are doing. You know, now you might be hearing people call themselves native landscapers, just mm-hmm. meaning they have a, a, a specialty in designing you, you know, the, these landscapes based on these species that, that we've been talking about that you know, have all these interconnections with, with the ecosystem around us. And so, yeah, people will... Sometimes I think people have a misconception that a quote unquote native landscape is, is, you know, more wild looking or more messy. Mm -hmm. And it's really, there's a lot of possibilities with Mm -hmm. using these plants in a landscape. And I tell people just because it maybe looks a little bit more wild, it's not going to look like a boxwood. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe thank goodness for that. Yeah, but it's going to look inter- interesting and and in so many different ways. And just because something maybe looks a little bit more wild, it doesn't mean that it looks messy. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I've really enjoyed getting to work with certain landscapers because that is something when when people are coming out and learning about these species from and and with me. A lot of people are still wanting to seek out some landscape design support because mm-hmm. it can be mm-hmm. intimidating if you're working on a, a landscape that you really want to aesthetically look good and mm-hmm. boy, I've, I've seen some amazing ones where there's a flower show throughout the year yeah mm-hmm. and they just come out like fireworks one of my friends called it as, as she described and i thought that was a really beautiful way to put it and i mean the color palettes are just beautiful tones i mean you can't you can't mm-hmm. almost beat the the palettes of i mean what american plum turns into throughout the year you know just starting off with the white white flowers, even before there are any leaves on the tree, plum has just covered in white flowers, and then the green foliage just gets greener throughout the season, and then the dots of red plums pop up, and then the foliage turns. It's it's just it's a it's a show, just like we get to see the sky change every day. You know that, yeah, that's how that these landscapes like look too. Good landscaping principles. You, you are you telling me that natives are not magical? I still have to use good landscaping principles. <laughs> planting, you know, you have to know something about the soil, Alexis. Josh, you have to know something about the ecology of the spice bush because it's a mid story, not an upper story. I mean, so we're talking about just. I mean, you still have to adhere to those principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you finding that that's why our landscapers kind of do they take that into account? I'm sure, Laura. When uh, they come to you, uh, they have a specialty, so I'm just assuming that they do take that into account. Oh yeah. Yeah. These folks are, I mean, as curious as they, as they should be about these plants and really particular about the spots to put them in. And I, I do say to people, you know, if you're going to try a plant in a different spot, you know, maybe not a typical spot for it. A native is a good, a good one to, to give a shot at, you know, out mm-hmm. of all of them. But yeah, they do. It is really important to communicate where they, where they like to be and, I'll often ask people just, you know, look at landscapes that you really admire or want to emulate, you know, or, or, or bring closer, you know, home to you. What plants are there? What's the spacing of them that are there? What's the upper, mid and lower canopy? And then we think about the phases to establish those. What we kind of been talking about, you know, we mentioned what your definition of native and things like that. And one thing that I think pops up a lot, at least when I talk about natives with people 
is the native plants that have been hybridized. So it's, you know, an echinacea or a baptisia or even a maple tree, right? So we have native maple trees here and maybe it's, it is our true genus species like native, but it's been hybridized. What is everyone's like feelings on those? Um, Mine is that, you know, there is, it depends on what your goals are, right? So when I'm talking to someone and their goals are a pollinator garden or a garden that is going to support the ecosystem in some way, as far as, you know, birds or whatever, usually I'm, I'm pointing them towards the straight species because a lot of the time our hybrids have been, you know, they're bred more for something showy or, Mm. you know, better fall color, better flower color, bigger flowers. So a lot of the time those uh, nectar sources or leaves, even sometimes leaf size, all of that has been bred out or is at a minimal. But if there's people who are like, I just want a garden that is going to be better, you know, it's going to establish better. Maybe it's going to weather the weather the weather better kind of thing. Or they just have like a hard to a very challenging area to garden in their garden you know, then, then going with a a hybrid is not a bad thing necessarily. And, you know, I grow, I'll cut flowers and I grow a lot of natives. Like that's kind of my, my niche is natives for cuts. And I have a mix of solid species and hybrids because they bloom at different times. And so in my mind, I'm supporting the ecosystem, but I'm also putting less into them. So it's kind of, I don't know, that's how I've, when I talk to people, it's really like, what is your goals with the natives? What are your all's thoughts on that? Like those hybrids and things. I'm with you on that, Alexis. It is, yeah, it comes down to what are, what are your goals? And mm-hmm. same thing with folks doing introduced removal. You know, what are your goals mm-hmm. with this? And yeah, I've, I've seen some, you know, different pieces of science about how even leaf chemistry can change mm-hmm. with hybridization mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's just looking into what are your what are your goals with it and for this particular cultivar or clone that you're looking at you know just right. just learn a little bit more about yeah. it i do i do talk to folks about um i grow a lot of fruit and nut species mm-hmm. but just the straight native species and so when mm-hmm. folks come to me and they're looking for a particular pawpaw cultivar or elderberry or hazelnut i'll point them to to some awesome growers we have here in kentucky who who really specialize in those in those you know specialty orchard species but i like to talk about the the straight native species and the the genetic diversity that you're that you're supporting the mm-hmm. ecosystem with you know those are the i've planted plenty of cultivars you know and, and we'll add a handful into our orchards here and there but i'm also planting a lot of the straight native species because those are going to be the ones that you know, have a shot at being really adaptable with any sort of disturbances or climate shifts that are happening. Yeah, I would, I would agree with both of y'all. Although the phrasing I usually use coming from ecology is the the cheap answer. It depends, but it does depend <laughs> on like Gosh. every question can be answered with it depends. And, you know, same thing. If somebody's looking for kind of wildlife support and, you know, restoration of habitat and things like that, then definitely the kind of the straight native. But if somebody's looking more for, especially in like a, an environment that they want to, you know, protect their house from like wind or something like that, like some other ecosystem service. And it's an environment that's like really harsh or cruel than, you know, something that's kind of been bred a little bit to be more like structurally 
like mm -hmm. tough. Pleasing, maybe. yeah. Yeah. Question for you guys. Uh, you guys are the perfect group to throw this at. But let's say somebody is brand new to the concept of natives and they're looking for just general support. They're looking to find out more information. What's your all's favorite references? Uh, Laura, you've already thrown out some two very mm -hmm. good ones. But how about websites or other resources where they can go and plug in something like a zip code and get some information on ground covers or upper story trees or, you know, grasses that may be native? Do you guys have any favorites? I know we have some good ones here in Kentucky. As far as websites go, uh, let's websites. I'm a big fan of, um, what is it? The uh, Kentucky native plant society. I've been mm -hmm. on their website a whole lot because I love the fact that, uh, you can do things, uh, by zip code and they've got a lot of resources on there, but, but what else, how, how do you guys direct people as they're just looking to get more information? The one that I have, like I leave, I don't even print the whole publication because I think I can throw some people off, but I print out the uh, tables that are in that. And it's something that's like always out for the public to get, get to whether I'm here or not is we have a rain garden publication that in it is, you know, how to put in a rain garden, blah, 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 blah but it's also rain garden plants. But uh, in these tables, it has everything set out. I love a good table. Right. And so you can go to shrubs or, um, you know, ferns or these uh, herbaceous perennials, all of these different styles of plants. And then you can go through there and you can just look at a box and be like, okay, I need a shade plant that's in a dry area. Here's a list of them. Uh, and so you can kind of cancel them out. Wet area uh, that's in full sun or whatever the, that mixes. And so I leave that. I just take that out of that publication. We can put that in the show notes. And so for Kentucky, but it could be, you know, useful if you're in any area, you might have to do a little bit more research, but at least you have those options in front of you that you're like, oh, well, I have a dry shade area. Here's some plants that would do well. And then maybe you have to call your local extension or do some more research on your local native uh, plant groups. But uh, I love that and I use it all the time. And then for my people who have some design who really need someone to design it for them essentially or just struggle with that, which I'm one of them, so <laughs> no judgment. There's actually the city of Lexington has some really good uh, – I forget what it's called. I'll, I'll find one. Like I, I want to call it Is it the approved the Lexington street trees or something? I think it's well, the list of their street trees. Well, but there's it's a it's plant by numbers. Yeah. Plant by numbers. Plant by so numbers. there is, yeah. Josh, yes, the street trees. If we're talking about trees, yes. But the plant by numbers for Lex, they have um, a couple different options, full shade, full sun, around your mailbox or around your home. And what in it, they're, I think, all natives or mostly natives. And it has like color schemes. So if you're like, I love blues and pinks, I would mm -hmm. love to plant around my mailbox native plants and blues and pinks. They give you a list and they give you just like a general picture. So you can kind of imagine what that would look like. And I think that can be really helpful for people who are just wanting to get started, know where to go. Those are really have been really great when I've worked with people. And then they adjust that, right? They might take that plant by numbers and they say, oh, I don't like the look of that. I'm going to add in this different echinacea from this other list. And But it helps visualize that. So I give that to everybody. Is that just for like Central Kentucky and Lexington, Alexis, that resource? It's got it, – you can look it up online. But it's it's got natives on it. So again, you'd have to kind of think about, you know, what is it's native. But for most people, yeah. their homes are pretty um, – um, 
what did you call it earlier, Josh? The built environment. Yeah, yeah. like a built environment. So it could mm. be a little bit more applicable to, I think, most of Kentucky. But again, you got to do a little bit of legwork on your own, but the basis is there. It seems like the Ladybird Johnson, you mentioned like how you can drill down a list uh, given mm-hmm. specific like sun versus shade versus soil type. A uh, national one that I use is the Ladybird Johnson out of, I, I believe, Texas, uh, but it's the Wildflower Center and it's applies to the entire country based on zip code, but it can be very specific. It's drill down tool is amazing. The mm-hmm. Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center. Laura, have you ever heard of that one or use that one. I love that one because you can get so specific based on specific sites. I really like yeah, that. Yeah, I've definitely used used that website before and it has like you said really particular information about especially the the pollinators, you know, which caterpillars are are hosted by that plant and and all of that. I think just even wherever you're at, you know, listening to this, just finding a a guidebook of the trees and shrubs that are found in your area doesn't even have to have native in the title, you know, but just what are the plants around me that I can start to get to know. And I think a companion guide to that would be what are the insects around me, you know, even just a butterfly and moth guide to start mm-hmm. off with. And oh, if you nice, really yeah. want to have some of the full circle picture, get a, a book of the, the mushrooms, the fungus that's found in your area. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all, it's all connected as we know. Um, but I, I love having just a stack of books with me and, uh, just, yeah, classic, take Local them into the woods with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wherever you're at, yeah. whichever country you may be in, there's probably going to be some reference materials for the flora and fauna that's there. So I guess if you're a self-directed learner, just seek out that information, try to find some reputable information on uh, where things can be located. Um, it's, it may yeah. be different. It's going to be different for your area. Yeah. Yeah. And talk to any grower that's in your area you know, mm-hmm. and whether they call themselves a, a native species grower or not, you know, and again, a lot of people, something I've really learned is a lot of us are out here growing plants and we may not have a native, you know, a native, mm-hmm. a tree nursery or a flower farm, but people are, that something is really in the air calling a lot of people right now to grow seed, grow from seed and mm-hmm. cuttings and just get more plants out into, out into the world. And I even think, you know, I've set up, I've had my fair share of setting up at farmer's markets, you know, with container mm-hmm. plants. And I see a lot of other people's doing that too. So mm-hmm. just, just talking and sharing knowledge is a really, really powerful way of, of learning about these plants too. So one thing we actually, we got so excited about like the in-depth of like, what is a native and all of the ecology of it all. Uh, but we didn't actually ask you what, I mean, we know you grow natives, obviously, but tell us more about what you all have there and what is available for people in the area. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I've, um, we grow about over 30 species of trees and shrubs. We, ate, we started the nursery 10 years ago, first as an effort just to get more trees planted on the farm. Mm-hmm. Like so much of our, our land, it was cleared and we'd love to get trees back you know, for livestock, but also Kennedy Creek runs through our farm, which drops into Stoner Creek, which is Paris's water supply. Mm. And so, you know, so we just know about our watersheds and water flow, you know, every bit of it is really important. And mm-hmm. so uh, my family actually, I guess about 15 years ago, planted a native buffer mm-hmm. around that creek. And so we just want to continue to, you know, piece that back together, get more shade for cattle, add some orchards, you know, for get more deer on this farm would be awesome. But 
and then just to, we started to diversify the farm operations too. You know, I'm, I'm the sixth generation to be stewarding this land. And so what's my piece of the, mm-hmm. of the puzzle here, you know, running cattle, but what else could we do? And so just, you know, economically diverse, the operation, you know, was, was a part of this goal too. So yeah, we grow, everything is in two gallon containers. Everyone is in two gallon containers. Um, we started off growing big canopy trees, you know, ton of oaks, tulip, poplar, sycamore, coffee tree, black gum. And the more I learned about all these species around us, I got really interested in our edible landscape plants, mm-hmm. pawpaw, American plum, all the different hickories we have. We have some huge hickories on the farm, hazelnut, and then our native flowering shrubs. Our native flowering shrubs are just amazing. You know, some can get 10 plus foot tall and create living hedges or, you know, even privacy screens. Sometimes folks come to me and ask about, um, you know, I want to block out an AC unit or block out a view of a fence or my neighbors. And I'm like, well, my, my pines are in two gallon containers that are pretty small, you know, so mm-hmm. it's going to take a minute for them to get that big. But I've been able to convince, you know, a handful of people, let's plant some Carolina allspice, let's plant mm-hmm. some spice bush or American plum in this hedgerow. And during the year, you can't see through that at all. And there's a ton of winter interest in that too, even when the, the leaves fall back. So yeah, we grow uh, all the all the containers are above ground and on an irrigation system, which of course is really helpful. They're all between one and four foot tall. You know, we're always trying to get them a little taller, but make sure the priority is that root ball, mm-hmm. uh, making sure the roots roots are happy and healthy. We stopped growing in plastic, probably maybe six years ago. Um, the roots can just circle so much in plastic, mm-hmm. especially when I might be caretaking for these plants a couple of growing seasons before uh, they go to their forever home when people buy them. And so we started growing in these fiber pots that are made from recycled plastic water bottles. And that's, it's, it's really neat. Um, and I see a lot of those on the market now, the ones I have aren't biodegradable. So you got to cut them off. Uh, but yeah, just trying to grow really uh, healthy and high quality plants that people are interested in. Every year I've tried different plants. Um, some I grow from seed that we collect on the farm. We have some beautiful oak trees and hickories and the plums we've planted and nine bark. Yeah, I grow from seed from our stock and many others. And then some I, we buy in as, as starts and our value add is growing them out for people. Mm. We, um, in, the, in the woody market, in the industry, there's, you know, one end of the spectrum is bare roots mm-hmm. that we've all seen and you know, handed out at giveaways or been on the receiving end of. And those can be, you know, pretty cheap per stem, you know, 80 cents, maybe a dollar per stem and really quick to go into the ground. But also because they don't have a lot of roots on them, mm-hmm. it's going to take them a while just to get established. Other end of the spectrum is the big trees you buy that are wrapped in. It's called ball and burlap. You know, so they're normally grown in the ground and then cut out of the ground. And that process can sometimes take as much as 30% of their roots off. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be hard to get top growth on that plant until those roots grow back. And so our intention has always been, let's grow a really solid, established, healthy root ball. Mm-hmm. So yeah. these plants are ready to sink into the soil and, and get growing. Um, and in that sense, death loss is typically a lot lower than either, you know, those other ends of the spectrum and even maintenance can be lower too. 
Yeah, no, I think that's that's awesome. I've got the the friend I told you whose whose garden has just like exploded over the years has a couple of your trees, uh, and I can tell you that they are all still alive after two years, and they are huge. They oh. took off super fast. So you all do a you all do a great job and really care that root ball, like you said, is so important for those young trees. And I think a lot of people can. There's research done, you know, on sizes of trees, and you know, there's. Everyone always thinks, well, I'm going to go put in this big three-inch caliper tree because it's kind of that instant gratification. They want the bigger, the better. But, you know, research is showing that some of these smaller ones, these one-inch, which are a little bit larger than what you're talking about, but are within, you know, three years are bigger than those really big, big ones. So it's kind of like, yeah, you got to be a little bit patient, but it's only a year and you're planting a tree that will probably outlive you. So a year is nothing. To wait commercial then, landscapes where right get more bang for your buck and they're cheaper <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and that all comes back to usually that root system is less a lot less disturbed and so the size that you all are doing are also really manageable for people like i have planted ball and burlap trees and man that's an mm. ordeal like even a smaller <laughs> right. ball and burlap tree like you're lugging it around you're trying not to break it and is just like I mean, if I didn't have a gift card for a really nice tree, I would have bought a much smaller one because I can plant that by myself. And so there's there's definitely a give and, give and take on that. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes you got to bring out some equipment. You know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, it was awesome. Around, it was a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen little kids plant plant our trees and that's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Too. Mm-hmm. We, the, the size of our, of our root balls is pretty nice we've experimented a handful of ways you know if we have folks buying you know a few hundred trees and we're trying to get as many out on our farm you know what is the most efficient way mm-hmm. to get them in the ground it is a two gallon so it's a couple shovel strokes you know we'll dig that hole we've we've used the auger on the tractor too mm-hmm. just to zip 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 you know in uh, zip in some holes and it's a good size but you got to be careful using some of that equipment. They can just really create a smooth mm-hmm. sidewall yeah, of that like hole. That glaze. You, yeah. Exactly. And you, you want to just score that up, you know, give mm-hmm. the roots something to, to penetrate into. Uh, but yeah, we, yeah, like I've said, we've had folks come out for, you know, pollinator support food crops, uh, perennial food crops for wildlife instead of planting a bunch of annuals, you know, annual corn or soybeans for deer, for example, um, or, you know, Turkey, whatever, whatever you're trying to to put in the freezer, um, planting a, a bunch of trees. Maybe plant a bunch of persimmon. Maybe you get some too, you know, and hold some deer on your farm. And then a big, a big, you know, set of projects that we support. Our plants support our riparian restoration and stream restoration projects. I think our waterways yeah, cool. just need need a ton of help. You know, talk about whacked out, you know, disturbed situations, you know, that's a a big (laughs) All the invasives and disturbances. Yeah. 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 That we, I mean, it all just comes back to us, you know, that we, Mm -hmm. we brought all that, all that here. And so um, as, as folks are, you know, trying to put some money and some time into helping our streams and increase the water quality, the, the plants, whether it's the herbaceous perennials, or it's the next level up, you know, the mid canopy shrubs or the, or the trees, you know, they all fit into that project as well. Sweet. Well, any last questions before I to ask Laura how we can find her and contact her and follow her and all that good stuff? Any lasting questions? Awesome. Well, Laura, tell us, how can they find you? How can they buy trees? How can they 
just follow around on your journey, all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, just come talk about plants. Share what you know with me too. <laughs> we have a our our nursery's name is Oakland Farm Trees. We're in Bourbon County, right outside of Paris, Kentucky, on Winchester Road. Uh, you can find us online, oaklandfarmtrees.com, as well as on Instagram, at our name, and Facebook. Uh, we only do appointments at the nursery, and so it's it's my number and my email on all these different platforms. And so you can just reach out, and we book an appointment, and you come out and visit. Uh, at a handful of times, we've had events on the farm for Tree Week, you know, hosted Urban Forest Initiative here in here in Lexington, or a uh, you know, garden clubs have, have also scheduled visits to come out and university classes. So if anybody has a group that wants to come out and see a small mid-scale nursery, you know, operation, happy to, to show what, what we do and what we know. And sometimes we even get to travel back on the farm and just see the 350-year-old oak trees and the hickories we harvest from. And we put in a stand of native warm season grasses. It's pretty cool to see cool. those growing. So yeah, we're trying to do a lot of different stuff and, and just build a build a farm operation that isn't reactive so much as it's proactive and just supporting Mother Nature. Awesome. Well, that's so exciting. Well, thank you so much, Laura, for being here with us and talking natives. Like I said, it was something that a lot of people commented on. So when you were like, hey, I was like, yes, come <laughs> hither. Let's talk all of the things. So we're really excited that you were able to join us today. And I am excited to come out and see all the cool stuff that you're going to do. So uh, now I'm just going to come out. And we're going to be like, I know you. We're best friends. Uh, so, <laughs> anyways, yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, so- that, sounds, that sounds really good Good to me. And thank you all so much for the conversation thank and you. the opportunity yeah. to be yeah in conversation and in this world with y'all, you know. Thanks for doing what y'all do for, on your end. Happy to have people like you out there doing doing the good things and making these things available. I know, like I said, Ray and I have you know people come to us all the time. They're like, where do we get it? So it's really One awesome now reference. to have yes, love it. people love to recommend uh, that we know have good quality product and really care about not just making a sale, but the whole ecosystem and how how those uh, interact. But if you have any questions, you can definitely contact Laura or you can contact us and we will get with her. And if you want to contact us, you would do that. You can shoot us an email. That link is, is in the show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and shoot us a DM, which is what Laura did. Uh, so see, it's not me just making up that you can contact us on there because you can and it'll be me. So, you know, just FYI. So you can do that. That's Hort Culture Podcast. Uh, if you want to leave us a review, you just tell us. Just If you just want to love on Laura and tell her how awesome she is, uh, please feel free to do that. And you don't even have to bring up the rest of us because who are we? She's amazing. Tell her how awesome all the things she's doing are. Uh, but we hope to hear from you guys soon. Thank you for being here with us. And we hope that as we grow this podcast, you will grow with us and join us next week. Have a great one. <laughs>